Okay, so if you see in your handout, the main point for tonight is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So truly believe in him. And I have, I have it broken down, the passage uh, there for you. Um, but does that main point remind you guys of anything? I hope it does. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So truly believe in him. Does that remind you guys of anything? Y'all got it. Yep. So Zach's on to it. No, in this book, we've talked about it every week. We've brought up this specific verse. It's towards the end of this gospel, specifically chapter 20. And now I'm going to keep waiting. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so truly believe in him. Chapter 20, verses, boom. Yes, chapter 20, verse 31, John gives us his purpose statement, the whole reason for writing this book at the very end of his book. He says that he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in his name, that you may have life. So that is the main point of our passage tonight, because we'll see that as he works through that in chapter 2. So with that in mind, let's dive into our first point, which on your handout you'll see is Jesus the Christ. So Jesus the Christ, and that's going to be in chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'll read it. It says, On the third day... There was a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Okay. So there's a lot we could wade into here. 
But with the limited time we have, we're just going to look at the main thing that John is trying to put in front of us with this first sign. And that being, just like he tells us in verse 11, the glory of Jesus. So we're going to focus on the glory of Jesus. We should ask ourselves, how does this sign reveal the glory of Jesus? So let's think about it together. This sign reveals the glory of Jesus, first off, because Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, come on, when's the last time you saw that? There was no little cape, there was no uh, flash of smoke or dramatic flare. Jesus just said to fill these jars to the brim with water, and then the next thing we know, they dish it out, and there's wine. That's it. He simply thinks it. He wills it. And this miracle happens. I mean, if Jesus is truly the word that we saw back in chapter 1, who was in the beginning with God and who was God and through whom or through him all things were made, then certainly turning water into wine shouldn't be too hard for him. And I think that's what we see here. Jesus made the very molecules that make up that water. Jesus made the grapes that were pressed into this wine. Jesus made the, the process of fermentation that made this wine. He made the chemicals. He made the bacteria. He made them all. This sign should show us that Jesus has power over his creation. And friends, this is your Savior, the mighty God of the universe. So behold him. See his glory displayed in the truths that come from turning water into wine by his very will. But I think John and Jesus, through John, is trying to show us even more than that. They're pointing to a spiritual reality behind this. John tips us off to some more nuanced realities uh, and, and shows us that Jesus does not just arbitrarily choose to turn water into wine. If you read through the Gospels, that's not really how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't do things without meaning. He doesn't do things arbitrarily. He had a purpose for choosing that he was going to turn water into wine at the beginning of his ministry. And there are two things that help us see that. The first, that John says this is his first sign towards the end of this, this uh, story. He says this is the first sign, which means this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The second is the fact that Jesus' first sign, he chose to turn water into wine. Wow, great job, Casey. I'm making this really clear for you guys. No. So he turned water into wine at the beginning of his ministry because he wants to show you something. He's calling something to mind. The times are changing. There are about to be huge changes in redemptive history. And Jesus, in his wisdom, wants to show you that. He wants you to see what this work is pointing to. So to do that, Jesus changes water into wine in the Jewish purification jars. Now, if we know our Bibles well, this should call some things to mind. 
throughout the Old Testament and then even into the New Testament, the Messiah or the Christ is depicted as the one who brings his people into the presence of God to dwell securely forever in peace with God. A lot of times this secure life-giving dwelling is depicted with an abundance of wine, with overflowing wine. There are places like Jeremiah 31 or Hosea 14, and even like we just read, and it's in your your handout, uh, Amos 9, that talk about this Messiah that's to come and, and bring his people to God in security to dwell with him for eternity in peace and abundance, and it's depicted through this overflowing wine. I'll read Isaiah 25, 6 through 8 for you. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Guys, this is what Jesus is drawing our mind to. This is what Jesus is literally beginning to do here. This is what he wants you to see. Jesus wants you to see him fill these huge jars to the very brim with water, and then he turns it into wine, showing an abundance of wine. And what a glory that reveals, because it ties back to these Old Testament passages of the Messiah, who's coming to swallow up the cover and the veil over all nations. He's coming to swallow up death forever. He's preparing a feast of rich food for his people. He's going to wipe away every tear from our faces and remove the reproach from his people. This is the work Jesus has come to do. This is the work that Jesus is trying to show you who he is. And praise God for it. Jesus did this. He is currently doing this. He will finally do this when he returns to make all things new. He is doing it before your very eyes when we read this passage. In his first sign. So if you're a Christian here tonight, be encouraged. This is secured for you. It is sure. It is waiting for you. Your Messiah, your Savior, has come and secured a feast for you. And most importantly, that feast is with your God. That is what Jesus is doing here. You know, in some ways, this, is, this should remind us of communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, we just took it this past Sunday. And in the Lord's Supper, yes, we declare the Lord's death as we symbolize his body being broken and his blood spilt for us. But Jesus' sacrificial death won us access to this feast with our God. The feast that Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is to a wedding. 
But this one is between Jesus and his church in Revelation 19, 6 through 10. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus' work he did on the cross. But we also look forward to the day whenever we will drink that wine with him at the feast of the Lamb. This is what we look forward to in the Lord's Supper. And this should encourage us every time we take the Lord's Supper, it should remind us of this hope that the Messiah that Jesus has secured for us. This is the glory that Jesus manifests in his first sign. And this is the glory that his disciples beheld and believed, it says at the very end in verse 11. But here's the problem. And here's where we're going to really dig in to our own lives. We don't always believe this. It says the disciples saw this glory and believed, which is John prompting us to, that we should respond in this way, that we should respond like the disciples, behold Jesus' glory and believe. And most of us would say we do believe this. We do believe this story. But when we live our lives, our lives say that we don't. Our lives say we don't believe the truths that this sign displays. In our sin, we say in this, in this reality that Jesus is preparing for us uh, um, a place, or sorry, sorry, in our sin, when we sin, we're saying that this, this secure hope that Jesus has restored for, or made for us is not true, or that we can secure for ourselves a better hope. That's what we say whenever we sin. That's what we do every time we sin. Or in dark times, when we despair, when we're depressed, when we're lonely or anxious, it seems like we lose sight of this reality, the reality that this sign is pointing to. The fact that the word who was in the beginning and was with God and was God, the word who by all things were made, this very word, the sovereign God of the universe, put on flesh and dwelt among us. He was born a baby and needed the care of his mother. He grew and lived life on this earth. He thirsted. He was hungry. He walked in the heat to Cana and Galilee to perform this miracle, and all for why? To reveal to you who God is and secure for us eternal joy with that God. Do you see how Jesus turning water into wine should be a comfort to us? A reminder to us when we're tempted to despair in dark times in our life, whether it be depression, a loss of a loved one, doubts, anxiety, loneliness, you name it, this reality should comfort us. So I encourage you guys to keep thinking about these things and how you can specifically apply these things to your life. And apply it to your life in such a way that the next time you're tempted to sin in a particular way, that you can say to yourself, Jesus, turn water into wine for me. And that would call to mind the hope that you have. 
so that you would remind yourself you don't need that sin. You have a better hope. This sin can't offer you the hope you're looking for. That is what we should be looking forward to. That's how we should be living our lives. Or when it seems there's no hope and all is dark and gloomy, you can look to this gentle Savior who turned water into wine for you and being reminded that there is a hope, a sure hope, a hope that pierces the darkness in our lives and shines through. So take comfort in the future that Jesus Christ has secured for you. Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's showing you. But that gets us to our next point, which is the second point in your handout, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. And that's going to be chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. I'll read that now for us. After that, or after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and uh, pigeons and the money changers set, uh, sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Whoa, it's a pretty intense scene. It's not often you see Jesus making whips and driving people out of the temple and flipping tables. And again, here there's so many things that we could dive into, but we're going to focus in on a, on a couple things. What I believe John is trying to show us here, and Jesus through John, is what the work Jesus is going to do as the Son of God. That's what John's trying to show us here. Jesus clearly claims himself to be the Son of God, here in verse 16 when he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And it may be a good time to remind ourselves of what the temple was. The temple was where God's presence dwelt with his people. Within the temple, there was rooms, but there in the center, there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and, and a few other things were. There was a huge curtain separating this room from the rest of the temple because this room was where God's glory dwelt. And only one person was allowed access into this room, and that was the high priest. 
And even then, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And when he did, they even tied a rope to his leg so that if he died beholding the glory of God, they could drag him out so that no one else would have to go in there. So for all these people to be in the temple, using it as a place to trade, sell, and barter was not good. It was not good because this was a place of worship, the place the very presence of God was. The people have taken the dwelling place of God and made it into a Walmart, basically. So when Jesus, as the Son of God, walks into the temple and sees this busy and chaotic scene, rather than seeing orderly and reverent worship, it infuriates Jesus. And so he drives everyone out. And this scene reminds the disciples of an Old Testament text, which is quoted, zeal for you, or zeal for your house will consume me. And this is no accident. This is quoted from Psalm 69.9, which is considered to be a messianic psalm, which basically means that this psalm prophetically points forward to the Messiah. And it does that by either explaining what he will do or who he is. So this psalm describes Jesus, or the Messiah, as a man who is suffering greatly. It says things like, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. But it also talks about a judgment that will happen to those who did hate this man, who did hate this Messiah. It says, Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. It's no coincidence that disciples' minds went to this passage because Jesus is literally enacting this judgment. He's beginning this judgment here in the temple. And the text is trying to show us that he is the one that is going to return and ultimately one day judge everything. He will be the one to judge everyone. Now, the Jews responded to this by challenging Jesus. And, and they said, what sign do you do? Uh, sorry, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're basically saying, prove to us that you have the authority to do this. And Jesus responds with a pretty baffling statement. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. The, Jew, the Jews were confused about this, as we see, because they think they were talking about the actual temple that they're in right now. But John, being the helpful narrator that he is, he tells us that Jesus was talking about himself. He was talking about his own body. That Jesus would die and be raised from the dead. And again, John cues us on how we should respond to this. He says, uh, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. John is showing us how we should respond to this text. We respond by believing. Now let's sum up all the things we just saw in this. Jesus, the Son of God, verse 16, is beginning to enact this messianic judgment 
that we saw, okay, in verses 15 and 17 with the Old Testament quote. And Jesus is claiming himself to be the temple where the fullness of God dwells, verses 19 and 21. And this temple will be destroyed but be rebuilt in three days, proving his authority, verse 19. And we know that this is in reference to Jesus' death and resurrection, verse 22. So then what does this mean for us? What does this have to say to us? For the believer here, for those who are Christians, know that this has great news for you in many fronts. Jesus, as we talked about earlier, has secured for you access to God through himself as our temple. It is by uh, who Jesus is and what he has done that we have full access to God. And when we are united to him by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit in us, we now become a part of this temple of God. We're brought into this temple. And friends, when we think of the temple and the continual sacrifices that were offered up to God there for the sins of the people, it should be restful for us to know that in this temple, in Jesus, he, our high priest, has offered up a sacrifice on our behalf, a continual sacrifice. We don't have to bring sacrifices to the temple. If you struggle with, with legalism or feeling like you need to check off a bunch of boxes to be right with God, then see Christ, who is your temple, in his finished work. Rest in his finished work. Rest your busy feet and trust his work, his sacrifice. Stop trusting in yourself and in your works to save you. Jesus has offered up himself. But also notice, too, that this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There are still years that he would, until he will finally be crucified and then raised. But Jesus says here in our text that this temple will be destroyed and raised up. And along with that, back in the previous text we just read, he says his time has not yet come. Friends, know that your God, your Savior, knew he was going to die. He knew what he was here to do. And he did it for you. When he took the crown of thorns and lashings, he knew he was accomplishing your salvation and God's glory. When he was nailed to the cross, being mocked, he knew you and remained there despising the shame because he knew this would give you access to him. When eternities of wrath were being poured out on him on the cross, he remained knowing he was receiving the punishment for your sins so you could go free. Do you see the love of Christ for you? For you specifically? His whole ministry, he knew what was coming. Yet he continued submitting himself to the Father for your sake and for the glory of God. Do you see the patience of Christ towards you? Do you see his gentleness towards you, his heart towards you, his love towards you? Let it be an encouragement to you. Let it soothe your anxious hands. Let it cool your angry heart. Let it be a light in your dark times. 
But to those here who are not Christians, know that this judgment, this judgment that Jesus is enacting, that he's beginning, is sure. That Jesus is showing you right here that this judgment will happen. Left to yourself, in your sins, you will be guilty before God. That punishment upon punishment that we saw in Psalm 69 is the punishment that is resting on you in this very moment. And the only reason you haven't experienced that punishment is because God's patience towards you in sustaining your life. So if you're not a Christian, I beg you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. See him as the Christ the Son of God, who has come into the world, the one who was perfect in righteousness throughout his whole life and then died on the cross, taking on punishments upon punishments from the Father, the wrath of God. And then three days later, that broken temple was rebuilt. Jesus rose from the dead. He swallowed up death for all those who will believe in his name and turn from their sins. He secured eternal life. Jesus is working to show you the truth of himself so that you would believe. John is trying to show you Jesus and how you should respond to him so that you may believe. I'm trying to show you this very moment the authority and the glory of Jesus so that you may believe. So I beg you to believe in Jesus and who he truly is and turn from your sins. But you may say to yourself that you're not like the people who that psalm described, those people who hate the, the Messiah. But in fact, what John is trying to show you is if you do not believe who Jesus truly is, the Christ, the Son of God, then you actually do hate him. You are rejecting his very identity, who he is, and all the work that he has come to do. This is actually the very thing John shows us at the end of this chapter, which gets us to the final point. Don't worry, it's much shorter. The final point, true belief in Jesus. True belief in Jesus. And this will be in verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." This part on the surface level may be confusing to us if we're not reading carefully. It says many people believed in Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. And it's helpful here to be reminded of John's purpose statement that we talked about at the very beginning and that what's very close to our main idea. John says he writes this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's whole purpose for writing the book. 
so that you would believe. But notice, he wants you to believe very specifically that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. So back in our passage, here John is helping us to see a theme that he's woven all throughout his book, a theme of those who wrongly believe and those who rightly believe. Sure, John puts some people in front of you who outright don't believe, but it's much rarer than those who do believe but believe wrongly. Our hearts are deceptive. The devil is crafty. And John wants us to know what true belief is. So here he explains that there are some who profess belief in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he ultimately knew what was in their hearts. They saw he could perform miracles, so they believed that maybe he was from God, but it seems as though these people did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. John works this theme all throughout his gospel, and actually immediately after our passage today in, in chapter 3, he goes into this story with Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. But if you continue in the story, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for understanding wrongly. Yes, it's true that Jesus is a rabbi, which means teacher. Yes, it's true that Jesus comes from God, but that's not enough. Jesus is no simple teacher. Jesus did not simply come from God. Jesus is not just a prophet who speaks for God. Jesus is not just a good example for us to follow or uh, someone to go to in our time of need. Jesus is all of these things, but he is not just any of these things. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one by whom we have access to the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the bread of life. Jesus is the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, and by him all things are made. Jesus is the one who has life in himself and is the light of men. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the I am that came, that came before Abraham, the good shepherd, the son of man, the true vine, the resurrection, and the life. This is what John wants you to believe. This is the Jesus he's putting before you. If we rightly behold our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we will experience true life. And the cold ice of sin and darkness in our lives will slowly melt away as we're warmed by his glorious light. So behold your God often in his word. Look to Jesus and see his glory. I want to end tonight by reading a quote from someone who beheld the glory of Christ well, and that's John Owen in his book, The Glory of Christ. Pretty great. He says, By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passions, and lust. 
By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace. By beholding the glory of Christ, we shall begin to experience what it means to be everlastingly blessed. So my final encouragement to you guys is to submit yourselves to this Jesus. Behold him. Be in awe of him in his glory. Believe in his name, the true name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and you will find eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through your Son, you've revealed these things to us. God, we pray that it would be a comfort to us, that it would be convicting to us, it would spur us on in our faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah who is securing a place for us with our God, and he is the one who will judge all. God, help us to remember this truth and apply it to our lives. We need your help, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.